If you've got a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Isaiah. Book of Isaiah is in the Old Testament, written some 700 years before Jesus came. Isaiah chapter 21. Isaiah chapter 20, 21 is where we're going to be uh, looking today. And we're going to be reading Isaiah 21, 22, and 23. This is a, a section of scripture that contains... Uh, a few oracles or revelations from God, these prophecies that were uh, given to Isaiah for the people. And in the middle of these three chapters, now I went to Transcona Collegiate Institute, uh, so I know that in the middle of 21, 22, and 23 is 22. That I know very well. Thank you to TCI. And in the middle of this in the middle of this section of scripture, chapter 22 uh, begins this way. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. Valley of vision, that might be a phrase that some of you are familiar with. The valley of vision. And we'll get, as we approach that part of the text a little later, we're going to get into what that actually means in fullness. But for now, we can understand that there are times, there are times in our life in which darkness seems to be overwhelming. And the Bible often calls those times valleys. And that darkness may be caused by a number of things. That darkness might be caused by the sin of other people around us. We're surrounded by the darkness of people disobeying God. That darkness might also be caused by our sin. We might feel distant from God and not really understand the, the light or, or recognize the light of God's presence. We might feel like we are hopeless in our sin. And why do I keep doing this? Why is this sin? Why does this sin keep coming out of me? Now, the people of Israel were in this darkness, this valley. They were surrounded by doom and gloom. They were surrounded by enemy nations that wanted to destroy them. World powers, national powers, industry, all these things grappling for control. And the question was, where would they turn? Where would they turn? And they were tempted to run away from the household of God and to run outside to places like Babylon or to Egypt and to their gods. And it is to these uh, people, the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, that God speaks these words. And if you get anything out of these passages, out of, out of this sermon, you will get something. I would, I would, it would please me if you got this. That there is no safe place to run, but only to Zion and to her King, the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not escape pain and sorrow and darkness by running away. Running from him is no way to find safety. Because the cities of the world also have trouble. But the difference between the city of God, his people, and the cities of the world is that the cities of the world, their trouble does not end with joy. The joy of the child born at Christmas, 
But for the city of God, their sorrow ends and is comforted by the child born at Christmas, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see in these three chapters, what we've seen for the last few is that Isaiah is going to give these promises and these warnings, and then mixed in, he's going to give these interim promises, these interim fulfillments, things that are going to happen in a few years, in a year, in in several years, to prove that when these things happen, the word that was spoken, God is, these, these come from the mouth of God, they can be trusted. And so dear friends, the words that you will hear can be trusted because they are the very words of God. And they are spoken to people who are experiencing the valley of vision, feeling overwhelmed with either their own sin or someone else's. And so our first point is this. God's watchmen will announce that Babylon, the city of the world, will fall along with its idols. So let's read together Isaiah chapter 21. We're going to read the first 10 verses. This is the word of the Lord. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, as whirlwinds and the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Media. All the sighing she has caused, I will bring to an end. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare a table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes. Oil the shield. For thus the Lord has said to me, go set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees when he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders in donkeys, riders on camels. Let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my posts I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. O my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. Thus far God's word. So as I said, the people of Israel were tempted to turn to Babylon to deal with the threat of Syria or Assyria, this world empire that's coming, and they're looking, what hope do we have? And they were tempted to look to Babylon. And now the people of Israel actually were facing these punishments because of God's discipline and judgment. And so actually the enemy nations that were coming against them was actually the hand of God coming against them because of their sin. It was his hand of of discipline. And so they were very tempted to run to Babylon and to Babylon's idols. And so God sets a watchman. And he calls, and this is Isaiah, a watchman. And there you have this picture of a man standing at a high place outside the city or maybe at a high place of the wall. And he's to see things that are coming ahead of time so he could warn people about coming judgment. And in this case, the watchman tells the city of God what will happen to the city of the world, Babylon. He wants them to know Babylon's fate because, or before it happens. He sees it. Far off, and we see in the verses four or one to four, we see a terrible fate 
for Babylon. Did you see that? The Medes and the Persians are going to destroy them. He prophesies this years before it happens. Do you see how it was, it was um, described? Like labor pains, but no birth. The pains of labor, of childbirth, but actually no birth. This is what is, it is described to. And Isaiah actually, as part of his prophecy, he feels this incredible pain. He's sickened by the destruction. It's good because it's of the justice of God. But it is a terrible, wicked sight. It is gut-wrenching. And then in verses 5 to 10, you see this, this watchman, he, he sees horses returning from battle in pairs. And this is a sign that, that those horses have been, the people riding those horses have been victorious. Babylon is fallen. Babylon's idols have also fallen with her. This is a warning to God's people not to run to the city of the world when they feel darkness, when they feel uncertainty. There will be a temptation to run away from God and to run away from his people because of the darkness that you feel and you think perhaps perhaps there's less darkness, there's less doom, there's less gloom, there's less pain and sorrow if I run to the world and the things that she hopes in. The city of the world keeps telling us, oh, it's better here. And so this is a beautiful prophecy, a terrible prophecy, but it is a very helpful one to the people of God. Do not run from the people of God and do not run to the city of the world and her idols because they will certainly fall. We have already read of the prophecy of Isaiah 9 where it talks about the gloom of God's people, the darkness that they will that they will experience. He compares those to labor pains. Can you remember in Isaiah chapter 9, what ends the sorrow and gloom of the pains of God's people? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. This is good words for our souls as well. We too, like Israel, are tempted to escape trouble and sorrow and uncertainty by running out of the family of God, running away from God. And whatever idols the world tells us are the best ones. Because we, fear that we feel that there will be less suffering and less sorrow. But church, we are fools to think that there is less suffering in the world. And even more so, we are fools to think that their suffering, when it ends, it, it, that it will end with joy. Because remember, Isaiah prophesies that the pains of the city of the world, the labor pains, will be made even worse because there is no child, no Messiah born to them. But to the city of God, there will be pains. There is sorrow. In the world, you will have trouble. Promises our Messiah but take heart because he has overcome the world. Do not fear what they fear. Do not hope in what they hope. The only place that is safe to run to is to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and cling to him along with his people, with the city of God, 
Zion. Brings us to our second point. Worldly watchmen will be fooled by God's patience. Worldly watchmen will be fooled by God's patience. We're going to see this in 11 to 17 of chapter 21. This is the word of the Lord. The oracle concerning Duma. One is calling to me from Seir. Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says, morning comes and also the night. If you inquire, inquire, come back again. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia, you will lodge. O caravans of Dedanites, to the thirsty bring water. Meet the fugitive with bread. O inhabitants of the land of Tema, for they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end, and the remainder of the archers of the mighty men and the sons of Kedar will be few, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken." As far God's word. And so we start this passage, this portion of, of the word of God. We, we start this with the word concerning Duma. And we have these, um, these, these nations and these cities that are mentioned. So we're referring here to the Edomites, the descendants of Jacob's brother or Israel's brother Esau. And so we start here with this picture of a watchman and people come up to the watchman and they're saying, Hey, what's, what do you see? What do you see? And, and essentially he's saying the same thing I saw yesterday. And that's the same thing I'm seeing tonight. Come back tomorrow. I'm going to say the same thing. Nothing ever happens. Nothing to report. There will not be anything to report. Nothing changes. It'll be the same tomorrow as it was today. And then we follow that up with a prophecy of impending doom. And then they are running out of their cities and they're hiding in the thickets, in the forests and they're refugees that need to be taken care of and fed by other people. What's the point of this passage? The point of this passage is that, is that the worldly watchmen will be fooled by God's patience. They will hear of the warnings of God, of the coming judgment of God. In fact, God has written that on every human heart, that there is a God and that you stand before him guilty and that he is coming to judge the living and the dead. This is something that every single person knows. Even if you're not a Christian, you know this deep in your heart. But the watchmen of the world, those who give advice and tell you how to prepare for the future, they'll tell you, Oh no, there's no judgment coming. There wasn't yesterday. God didn't come back yesterday. This must be a lie. God must not be real. He must not be the judge. He said he's coming, but he hasn't already. But you are a fool to mistake God's patience for the fact that he does not judge. He certainly does judge. He certainly will come. Peter reminds us of these things when he says, this is how it was in the, in the days of Noah. Noah said that there was a coming judgment that would take the entire world, except for the people who go into the ark. And the people laughed at him. When is this going to happen? You said it would happen. It didn't happen yesterday. And so they take the Lord's patience as if it was a sign that he is impotent or that he does not judge. But it is actually his goodness. Now, God's work 
in scripture, it always really included two ways. The first is these major events in history that you can see. You can see the flood. You can see the the call of Abraham. You could see the Exodus. You can see these things. But in between those, you see long periods of time where he shepherds his people with his word and all looks normal. He works with his invisible hand of providence. And people can mistake that for him not being actively involved. And so this prophecy that Isaiah gives in chapter 21 is a warning for us to not be lulled to sleep by the watchmen of the world. To say, look, he didn't come yesterday. Clearly, he's not coming tomorrow. This is God's, this is God's patience before he brings punishment that people would hear these warnings and repent and come to him. And we see here an interim fulfillment. There's destruction coming and it will come in the days of Isaiah and in the days of the people who first receive this. It will certainly come, he says in verse 16, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Keter will come to an end. And the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Keter will be few for the Lord, the God of Israel has spoken. When this came true, as it did, it proved to the city of God, to Zion, that God's watchmen, Isaiah, and the prophets who are recorded in scripture can be trusted. We should not run to the city of the world. And we shouldn't listen to their watchmen who say, don't worry, judgment from God is not coming. That brings us to our third point. Our third point is this, come to the Lord in grief over sin and do not celebrate or defend yourself. Come to the Lord in grief over sin. Do not celebrate or defend yourself. For this, we're going to take, uh, we're going to look at the first 14 verses of chapter 22, right? You got this, this sandwich, which the prophets love to use these sandwiches, these Oreos. And right in the middle is the word to Zion. Isaiah 22, verse 1, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you've gone up, all of you to the housetops, you who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town? You're slain or not slain with a sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me, weep in bitter te- let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision. A battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen. And Kerr uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the coverings of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected waters in the, of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it. Or see him who planned it long ago. 
In that day, the Lord of hosts, Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning for baldness and wearing sackcloth and behold joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. That's far God's word. So as we saw already, um, as I mentioned before, this is the valley of vision. It is concerning the valley of vision. First of all, we can look at some topography, a little geography. We see that Jerusalem was a city on a hill. It was a city on a hill that was surrounded by a big valley, and the valley was surrounded by mountainous region. And there's this valley of Judea. And this is a valley where God had spoke many words. Jerusalem was rich in vision, rich in prophecy. God had spoken many words to these people. They had heard, they had the benefit of God sending them many prophet, prophet after prophet after prophet. He sent them his word and his covenants, and he had cared for them. Here it is called a valley, which is interesting because normally in Isaiah, the city of God is called a mountain, this glorious thing, and yet now it's called a valley of vision. You see this word play going on, and that means it's in a time that is marked with sin and also sin's stain. It was a dark time for the people of Zion, for the people of Israel as a whole. They were facing the result of their own sin, and they were facing the result of other people's sin. Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, sings the psalmist. And God speaks to his people even there. Jerusalem was swimming in sin. Jerusalem was neck deep in sin, and they were facing God's discipline. And what they learned is that they were not safe just because they had received the word of God. They had lots of word of God. And yet that didn't keep them safe. They were only safe if they heard the word of God, if they received the word of God with faith. And so they are facing this darkness because of their sin. The idea that they are guilty before God that they are acting in a way that has displeased God. There's that feeling of darkness. And what was the proper response? Would have been the proper response to that? Well, first of all, we see what was the wrong response. They're celebrating. They're on the rooftops, throwing a party. They are eating rich food and they are drinking fine wine and they are celebrating. We see this. And then, even so, they, the, the Lord says, I called for weeping and sorrow. I called for repentance. And they just celebrated their sin. You see this, that, that Israel is, is, is even, even when their sorrow, even when their joy, that foolish joy of celebrating their sin, even when it is taken away, they still don't turn to the Lord. What do they do? They run to the house of the, 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 the there's a weapons cache in the forest. And they run there, and it's been empty. They come back. They look at the walls of Jerusalem. They're broken down. So what do they do? Do they turn to the Lord? God, help us. No. What do they do? 
They start making an inventory of all the houses that they have and all of the, all the parts that they could take from these houses to patch up the wall. A, B, G, anything but God. In their darkness, they would do anything. They would even destroy themselves rather than turning to the Lord in this time of darkness. They covered themselves up with their breaches in the wall. This is meaning to say that rather than repenting of their sin, they sort of tried to defend themselves from God coming at them. We can handle God. We'll just sort of like fortify ourselves. They go from celebrating their sin to sort of defending themselves against God's punishment. Anything but turning to him in repentance. They are covering themselves. But I wonder if you notice this, this theme of being uncovered. Did you notice this? The weapons cache in the forest, that's taken away so they're exposed. They're, they've got breaches in the walls. And they have to, so they're, they're exposed. They're being uncovered. God is uncovering them. Verse eight, it says very clearly, he has taken away the covering of Judah. And this is often our response when we realize that we have not been living in a way that pleases the Lord. When we sense his displeasure with what we've done. Sometimes we just double down and celebrate this. This isn't wrong. This is good. This activity, this thing that I'm doing is actually the right thing for me to do. It's, I, God says he's upset about it, but I, I'm happy about it. I want everybody to celebrate this with me. Now we can look at the world in the ways they do it, and they're doing it in some pretty obvious ways. But brothers and sisters, we do it too. I'm being a jerk to my wife. Well, pfft. I should sell, I should, I, this is the right thing. This is the only thing I could have done. You would have done it. You should have done. I should do this. It is my right to do it. It is the right response. Or perhaps when we sense the displeasure of God toward our actions, we try to cover up, not just by celebrating, but by maybe making it up to God. Yes, I did these things, but maybe if I do a bunch of other good things, I could atone for my sin. I could earn my way back to God's pleasure. But friends, neither of those things actually deal with that darkness of God's displeasure. The only thing that will do is repenting and turning to him in faith. Friends, do not celebrate your sin. And do not, do not, Try to defend yourself by putting up three or four good actions to pay for that bad action. Turn to the Lord in brokenness. He'll say in scripture, it's not, I don't want you to rend your garments. I want you to rend your hearts. Come to him. Confess that you are guilty. Confess that you have no plea, but the mercy and kindness of God in the salvation that is offered in his son. Do not celebrate your sin and do not try to defend yourself by good deeds. Those deeds will not do. God will uncover all of those things so that you will be exposed and you have no plea left other than the gospel. So make that your plea. I wonder if you noticed the watchman. Remember this theme of Israel trying to cover herself up? And then God now uncovering, right? 
Judah has been uncovered. He's removing those fig leaves. But then you have a very interesting phrase in verse 14, a very interesting thing for a prophet to say. He essentially is saying, I got a prophecy, but he says it in a way that sort of corresponds with the rest of the passage. What does he say in verse 14? The Lord of of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Literally, he's saying, the Lord of, of hosts has uncovered himself in my ears. A very interesting statement. And the idea is this, the watchman of the Lord is different than the watchmen of the cities of the world. Those watchmen are trying to interpret what's happening in, in, in the world and trying to give you the best advice and try to predict what happens before it happens to give you good advice. And that's what the world's watchmen, that's what Twitter is. But not so with the watchmen of God's people. They're not looking in the world to find patterns and find where to, where to put your hope and, and where to escape this judgment or to escape this calamity or all these things. That's not what they're doing. What is their job? What has the Lord uncovered, revealed in our ears, which is the word of God? That is the only thing one of God's watchmen is permitted to do. And I have felt and I have seen in our day a pressure on the watchmen of God's people, the pastors, the preachers, to act as if we were the watchmen of the cities of the world. To look out and see what's happening and predict who's going to win, which is, which is the right side to be on, so that we can save ourselves from impending doom. Where the church is often demanding that the watchmen of God's people act as if they were just a Christian version of the watchmen of the cities of the world. Not so. The men who stand before you and proclaim what the church should do and what the church should know and the church should believe should do so only and explicitly from the word of God. We don't need to know anything else. To know how to please God. Only, only that. Fourth point is this. Only one man can hold the household of God secure. Only one man can hold the household of God secure. We're going to see this in verses 15 to 25 of chapter 22. Thus said the, says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward to Shebna, who's over the household and say to him, what have you to do here? And whom have you here? That you have cut out here a tomb for yourself. You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently. Oh, you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into the land. And there you shall die. And there shall be your glorious chariots, your, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and I will bind your sash on him and he will and and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. 
and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken thus far God's word. Now we have a very interesting set of prophecies here, don't we? We get a, we get a peek in the household of the king. We get to see two men. First man's name is Shebna. Shebna was a steward. Now, not the kind of steward that makes coffee for us, as in our good steward. He's a very good steward. No, Shebna is a bad steward. Shebna is essentially an imposter. He's, he's actually one of the king's servants in the house of David. He's one of the king's servants, and he's essentially taking over. He's acting as if he is king. He's using authority. He's trying to gain for himself more and more power. And what does he do with that power? Essentially, what he does is he uses his power to gain more and more glory for himself, more and more honor. He uses his power in order to shield himself, and he essentially makes the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, he makes them almost like a living shield. He is putting them in front of himself in order to guard his own interests. The man is so self-absorbed, he's already thinking about his legacy. Israel is headed for impending doom, certain ruin. And this man is already, he's already building a, a monument to himself. This tomb that he is carving out in the rock. So he shall be remembered forever. I will never leave Zion. Even after I die, my memory will never leave Zion. And what does the Lord say? You will be removed from office. And what is this picture that the Lord uses? This man who's so sure he's staying in Zion forever. My name will be always remembered. People will always honor me. They'll always walk by this and say, what a good man that Shebna was. What does the Lord do in this vision? He takes a a hold of him with two hands and he spins around and around and around. I've never spun while preaching. And he throws him like a ball. The exact opposite of what this man was thinking. He's using his power and authority, which was illegitimate. This man is no son of David. He's using it for his own glory and for his own protection at the cost of the lives of this people that he was lording it over. And who does the Lord replace him with? We see that there's this man called Eliakim. Now, he's replacing him with Eliakim, who happens to be a son of David, He's in the royal family, but he's not actually going to make him king. But he is going to become the royal steward. And God is going to place all the authority that Shebna had on him. He's going to place all of the power and authority. He says, if he opens a door, no one's going to be able to shut it. If he closes a door, no one's going to be able to open it. He gives him all of the authority over the household of David. And, Sheb, or sorry, and Eliakim is supposed to use this authority and power for the good of his people. And this is good. But it doesn't end well. Did you notice this? It doesn't end well. Even though he is a better person to have in this position, he's selfless. In the, in the end, 
he cannot bear the weight of it. You have this picture of all the authority being piled onto his shoulders. And, and it pictures him like a peg on the wall. And you know what happens if that peg is not secured enough? Maybe it's not in a stud. It's just in the drywall. What happens if you put too much of a load on that? Everything falls. And so you have this picture of the son of David, Eliakim, who is a better, he is a better person to be in authority than old Shebna, the ball tossed by God. He is better. And yet, he is not enough to bear the hope and weight of the people of Israel. I wonder if you were an Israelite and you, you started hearing about these, this, the authority being placed on his shoulders on this son of David, you might have thought about Isaiah chapter 9. Oh, look, to us a son is born, to us a child is, is given. We have the authority is going to be placed on his shoulders and will never end, right? Things being placed on his shoulders. You think maybe it's him. Maybe he's the one Isaiah was talking about. Maybe he's the son of David. All our hopes should have been in. He's sure better than Shebna. But what would happen when Israel puts their hope in a son of David who is also not God? Even then, their hope fails. Shebna used his position to shield himself. Eliakim, it looks like, did not. He used his position for the good of the people. David was the penultimate king of Israel. He was the best. And one of the things that made David the best king is he wanted his people not to put their eyes on him as their hope, but on his Lord. And in Psalm 110, David says some very interesting and odd head-scratching words. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, He's talking about his son, and yet he calls his son Lord. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. There would one day be a person, a man from the line of David, where all authority would be put on this man's shoulders. And he would use his power not to shield himself, not to protect himself, not for his own glory, but he would use his position of authority to shield his people from harm. And the biggest harm that was coming to God's people was not Babylon, not Assyria, not the Romans. Their greatest enemy was the fact that they stood guilty before God, that they were officially because of their sin, enemies of God, and the wrath of God was coming at them. And this son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, would place himself in, in front of that. He would stand in the way of God's people so that the wrath of God would hit him instead of them. And this man was given the keys to the house of David. He was also, we saw that in, in Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 1, it talks about those keys as being the keys of death and Hades, the keys to the grave. Because when he died, he rose from the dead. And he conquered the grave, and so he has those keys. Church, what, is, what does this mean? 
What are we meant to see with Jesus standing with all the authority in the keys of the house of David, where he opens and none can shut and shuts when none can open? Well, John in the, the, the uh, letter to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3, he speaks to a church, as Kevin read for us, who was feeling that their confession of faith in Christ, their love of Christ, their They're recognizing, they're saying, I am part of the household of God. I belong to Christ. That was closing doors for them. They were feeling like they were being shut out. That there was pain because of that. There was rejection because of that. And to that church who was suffering because they were Christians, he said, Jesus says, I am the son of David. I hold the keys to the house of David, to Jerusalem. And what I open, none can shut. And what I close, none can open. Do not run to the kingdoms of the world in your fear. Run to me. Because they will be shut out from the kingdom of God. But you, if you run to Christ, if you trust in his death and resurrection... You will be in the household of God. How in will you be? In Revelation 3, what does it say? How in will you be in the house? You're part of it. You're one of the pillars. You're not just visiting. You are in and you never will be. Because you are in the household of God on the merits of the son of God, the son of David. And so we have an interim fulfillment of this proof that this prophecy was true. And that was that Shebna was actually shamefully removed. If you continue in the book of Isaiah, you'll see this. And in in the, the record of the history of God's people in the word of God. And he was replaced by Eliakim. And Christ came, the son of David. He did die. He was buried and he did rise from the dead, proving that he has the keys of the grave in his hands and you are no fool for hanging all of your hopes on him that key that peg in the wall because he can be trusted our last point is this god will defile the pride of worldly boasts and use them to build his household isaiah 23 1 to 18 well the whole passage let's read this The oracle concerning Tyre, wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor from the land of Cyprus. It is revealed to them. Be still, O O inhabitants of the coast. The merchants of Zion or Sidon who cross the sea have filled you. And on many waters, your revenue was the grain of Sihor, the harvest of the Nile. You were the merchant of the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken. The stronghold of the sea saying, I have neither labored nor given birth. I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. When the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish, wail, O inhabitants of the coast. Is this your exultant city whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away? Who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were honored of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth, 
Cross over your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no restraint anymore. He has stretched out his hand over the sea. He has shaken the kingdoms. The Lord has given command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, you will no more exalt, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. Even there you will have no rest. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans, this is the people that was not. Assyria destined it for wild beasts. They erected their siege towers. They stripped her palaces bare. They made her a ruin. Wail, O O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is laid waste. In that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, like the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre, as in the song of the prostitute. Take a harp, go about the city, O forgotten prostitute, make sweet melodies, sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of 70 years, The Lord will visit Tyre and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored up or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. And so here we have an interim fulfillment that is meant to reinforce all of these things that we heard before. Tyre, this land to the northwest of, of Israel, sometimes her friend, sometimes her enemy. Tyre was really an equal opportunity friend. Tyre really didn't have a lot of, of, of loyalty. This ta- it talks about ta- Tyre compares her to a prostitute. No real loyalty. If she could make a profit, she'd make a profit. She'd help, she would be with Egypt and her gods, Israel and his God maybe, uh, and, and Canaan, everybody. She just, all she wanted was profit. All she wanted was money. No commitment, no covenant, just profit. And so that's why she was called a prostitute. And she is put to shame. She is conquered. Her conquering is put in some pretty strong words. Whale. She's destroyed. Egypt's going to hear about this and be like, ooh, shudder. Oh. But the prophecy is this. After 70 years, she will be restored to her land. Once again, she will be a merchant. She will trade. She will be a seaport and she will get lots of things. She'll take it in and she'll ship it away. She will return to this former glory of essentially prostituting yourself with the nations. But what will be the result? Why is Israel supposed to notice the end of this story? What ends up happening? At the end of 70 years, it doesn't look like she repents, but God is going to use her wealth to bless his people. And wouldn't you know that after 70 years after Tyre was destroyed, she actually did come back into existence. She was restored. Her wealth was restored. And if you read in the book of Ezra, you'll find that God used the wealth of Tyre to build the temple after Israel herself was restored to the land. And so friends, this is the point, the shepherding point to Israel. Do not fear the nations. Do not run to them. Do not think it's safer with the city of the world. God is sovereign over them. They're rising and they're falling. 
And he will be sovereign over them to shame their hopes, to make them embarrassed about the things that they hoped and bragged in. But he's also sovereign over them to use, his, to use those events to actually build his people, to build his temple. These things happened. These things actually happened to Tyre after Isaiah prophesied for them. And so this is God giving us confidence to listen to his watchmen that do not be tempted to run to the city of the world and to its gods. Don't be a fool to think that there is less suffering there. There's not. The difference between the suffering that you will see in the world and the suffering in Zion is that the world's suffering will be like a woman who is in labor but doesn't give birth. But Zion's suffering, when she goes through darkness, when the church goes through darkness, yes, it is like labor pains, but she will be comforted because to Zion, to the people of God, to the household of David, a child was born and to us, a son was given and the government will be put on his shoulders and he will hold it not just for a little while, like Eliakim was able to do, but forever and ever and ever and ever. Friends, you can be part of that household, but there is only one way. You repent of your sin and you trust that Christ Jesus died for your sin, that he took the judgment you deserved and that he rose from the dead so that you can enjoy the glory that he deserves. There is no entrance into that kingdom by being good enough, by proving that you are worthy. The only entrance in that kingdom is by turning away from rebellion for sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the great son of David. Do not run from Jesus and from his people. He alone can save. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are sovereign over all the world, over Canada, over Tyre, over Babylon, over Israel, over Russia and Ukraine, over the United States, over China, over all of the companies, all of the industries, all of the weather. You are in charge of all of these things and that you govern these things for your glory and for the good of your bride. Lord, I pray that you would make us glad to be your people. That we would want to be nowhere else but to be in the city of God under the reign of the great son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we are tempted to run, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the fruitlessness and the despair of the world and of the glory that awaits those who belong to your son. Not that we deserve it, but because he does. But I pray that you would work that in us. In Jesus' name, amen.